Let's now turn in our Bibles to Deuteronomy 14. We'll read Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 to 21. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud, but do not part the hoof, are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof, but does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever is fins and scales, you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. And all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat, in its mother's milk. So far the reading of God's word. Beloved in the Lord, you are sons of the Lord your God. The purity regulations of the Old Testament stem from the third commandment. If you are a son of God, You bear the image of God. You are to wear that name with integrity, with wholeness in all your life. The majority of our passage contains regulations about what Israel is to eat. Behind this is is the truth. God is their creator. God is Lord over every area of Israelite life. And the fact that we too are sons of God affects the way we relate with our families. It affects the way we relate with our friends at our work. And even though we no longer follow the rules laid out here, it affects the way we eat, for we partake of the gifts of God with humble thanksgiving. I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, Keep yourselves pure, because you are sons of the Lord your God. So why did God command Israel to have these purity regulations? 
and then releases children from these regulations after he sent the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the most obvious answer is right there in the text. These purity regulations taught Israel about their holiness before God. They were sons of God. We might compare it to how we raise our children. When our children are younger, we will give them greater restrictions. As they grow older, we will release them from certain restrictions over time. God restricts Israel's diet so that she may grow in an understanding of who she is, her holiness before God. But why? We assume, and I, I think rightly, that these laws that God gives Israel are not simply arbitrary laws. They're not simply given for no reason, just so that God can lord it over the Israelites. God always has a purpose in what he does in our lives. In the same way, parental restrictions are not arbitrary. We don't let our young children walk by themselves on the road because they might get hit by a car. When they're older, of course, they have the maturity to know how to avoid that. We don't let our children watch any movie they like or any book or read any book they like because they're not capable of dealing with some of the subject matter. As they grow older, they will be freed from these regulations because they are more responsible, more mature. Hopefully, the principles of the regulations remain with them so that they will continue to make wise choices. That in mind, why did God give these regulations to Israel? One reason you will often hear is that God was concerned for the health of Israel. When we look at the unclean animals, we notice that there may be health benefits to avoiding the eating some of them. However, there's nothing in the text that supports this theory. The food laws are about ritual purity. Health may have been a side effect, but it's not the reasoning behind God's law here. A far more likely reason is that there is a symbolic significance to the clean and the unclean here. God is teaching Israel something about the type of people they interact with, the type of works they interact with. As we've already suggested, and we'll explain this more, there's likely a connection between these animals and what they do and the curse that is given to Satan in the garden. We need to be careful because God does not simply lay out the symbolism here. It's something we're called to reflect on. But through the contemplation of the church over these things, we can draw out the significance of what God is doing here. And what's particularly helpful are the laws that sandwich this section of the scriptures. We have the first law here, an instruction not to cut yourself or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. 
For, says God, you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth. This cutting, and this was not necessarily just a slight cut in your skin, this was some serious cutting, even some cultures at that time, would people would cut off a finger for the dead. And this shaving, they're meant to show that the death of a member of the community has taken away a part of oneself. We can think, too, of the much more extreme practice of sati, which is in our recent memory. Hindu women in India would burn themselves alive when their husband died. As God says in the scripture, he is a God of the living, not of the dead. The death of our friends and relatives, God wants us to know that the death of our friends and relatives is not a final separation. The Israelites are a people in relationship with a living God, and they are not to center their lives around the cult of the dead. The law in verse 20 also gives us perspective. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to the foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord God. So this is particularly important for the people of Israel. And once again, death comes up. The Israelites are not to be associated with death. That dead animal, that animal that died naturally, his death comes from within. And the Israelites are not to be associated with that. They are the people of the living God. And so this passage is about death and life. The animals that are off limits to the Israelites are the ones associated with the curse of death. The curse that happened in the garden. God is a God of the living. God is at war with death. And in this passage, he's, as it were, carving out a space for life. We read, we read at the beginning of that work in the words that God speaks to the serpent in Genesis 3. He condemns the serpent to eat dust and to go about on his belly. And he promises that he's going to put enmity. There's, there's that division. That division that's symbolized between the clean and the unclean. He's going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that hostility is evident in this passage. Besides the aspects of life and death, the war with the serpent informs this distinction between unclean and unclean. And we'll notice, again, as we go through, many of the unclean animals bear a resemblance to the serpent. Now this, is, this doesn't help us understand everything in this passage. It's a difficult passage. But it gives us some perspective on what God is doing in giving these diet restrictions to Israel. When Israel has an opportunity to eat a bear or a rabbit, they need to think and reflect 
on the reason that God gives for separating them from these animals. With that in mind, let's take a look at what differentiates the clean animals from the unclean. Large land animals are distinguished from unclean from the unclean by cloven hooves and chewing the cud. We might say, with relation to the cloven hooves, we might say that these animals have shoes that protect them from the cursed dust of the ground. The serpent rests on the cursed ground with his unprotected belly, but these animals have protection, like Israel, protected by God. They also chew the cud. They process what they are receiving from the world around them. They have a filter as as opposed to the serpent who eats dust. There may also be a connection between chewing the cud and contemplating on the law that God has given and applying it to Israelite life. If you've seen how a pig eats, on the other hand, he's a voracious animal. He doesn't spend time with his food. The second group here is fish. Israelites are allowed to eat scaly fish. They're not allowed to eat shrimp or eels. Scaly animals have protective armor from the effects of the curse. The birds too, they're a little harder to discern, but many of the unclean birds are carrion eaters. They eat death and are therefore, again, off limits. And finally, we're told here that you may eat clean winged insects. We know from Leviticus that these clean creeping things are those with jointed legs above the feet. Basically, locusts, crickets, and grasshoppers. Their joints, if you will, protect them from the effects of death. And from Leviticus, we also learn that all swarming things are also off-limits, like lizards, mole rats, and worms. And these, of course, are most like the serpent, eating dust and moving their bellies along the ground. These regulations teach the Israelite people that they are at war with the serpent and the serpent's works. The seed of the woman, the true humanity, is in a struggle with the seed of the serpent. They're also at war with death. The earth is cursed, and the people of God cannot look to the earth, to the things below, for their blessings. They need blessings from the heavens. Life comes from above. Life cannot, now that the earth is cursed, life cannot come from earthly things. They need God to cut off, excise death from their lives. The avoidance of animals associated with the serpent and with death, the work of the serpent, should warn Israel also to keep her distance from men who are defined by the works of the serpent. God wants to teach his people through these external regulations to commit to a total hatred of the devil and all his works. Of course, we know from the New Testament that these animals are not bad in themselves. They are rather meant to represent to us the evil work 
of the serpent. Once the serpent is defeated, we're free to eat these animals. Once we have grown in maturity through God's defeat of Satan, God says, all animals are now clean. How do these regulations apply to us? Christ tells us that the ultimate point here is that nothing outside of a man can defile him. The true meaning of these things is that defilement, it comes from our own heart, our own flesh. If we spend time with someone who does the works of the devil, and we start to imitate that person, the ultimate problem is not my company, it is rather that my company appeals to my flesh. Christ appeals to simple biology. What we eat does not go into our hearts. Rather, it goes into our bellies and then goes out the other end. And even this, even here you can make a point. In it is our flesh that makes that product stinky and unpleasant. That comes from the flesh. The point of these laws is not the nature of the animals themselves, but rather what they teach us about ourselves. It is things that come out of a man that defiles him. Jews were unclean by these animals because of the state of their heart. Man sinned. Sin brought death, and death spread to all men. That's what we're told in Romans 5. One source of our sin is that fear of death, that fear of death spreading into our lives. We want to be God. We want to have eternal life, but we want it our own way. We also know deep down that death is coming and we find ways to avoid it. Say you're accused of failure. Our first reaction is to deny or excuse that failure, even to lash back. A failure, a recognition of sin is a type of death. We want to affirm our own life at all costs. Another example, what do people mean when they say they want to live life to the fullest? It often means a life of, of pleasure, drinking, sex, and money. We're grasping for the full experience of life through these things. We fear the death of not enjoying these things in our lives. That's how abortion activists can call abortions life-fulfilling. But we know, of course, that that sin in response to death brings more death. The only answer is the surgery of God, the cutting off of that old man. And it's ultimately when we cut off that old man in Christ, in the cross of Christ, that we have we have the ability to fight back through the life of Christ. The knowledge that we have eternal life in Christ strengthens us in overcoming death. It gives us the power to stand up to the old man. 
We can live with failure, with unrealized expectations, with mocking, with false accusations, with brothers who fail us and wives or husbands who fail us because we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. That's our only comfort. Christ shows us that the only way to true life is death, his death through denying those lusts of the flesh, right? Just like we deny, just like the Israelites were called to deny those animals that looked like Satan. He lists those things that come from the heart in Matthew 7. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, pride, foolishness. We have died to death on the cross of Jesus. And that's why, ultimately, we don't need to separate ourselves from things that symbolize death anymore. Because we participate in a life that conquered death. And in our new life through the Spirit, we practice the works of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As we have already mentioned, there's also an application to who we spend time with here. The Christian is going to be careful about binding himself to someone who practices the works of the devil. The Christian's time with such a person will always be limited because they realize that their own flesh draws them away from Jesus. We as Christians are kind of in this in-between time. We have everything in Christ. We have eternal life, but that old man still works. And so we still need to exercise some caution in how we order our life. The death of Jesus means that I don't need to worry about symbolic uncleanness anymore, but I do need to pay attention to the way I deal with places where Satan dwells. We might take lessons from God's call to the people of God to separate themselves in this way. We'll definitely avoid places like strip clubs, dive bars, and pornographic websites. Perhaps we'll avoid other places or types of entertainment that particularly draw on our hearts, draw on our hearts to sin. We will also draw lines in our lives, order our lives, so that we may be careful about guarding our hearts from the wicked works of the sons of Satan. But in all this, we remember the source of defilement is not these things. It's our own hearts. Under under Christ, we're not physically separated from the world in the way Israel was. God has not set all Christians, called all Christians to gather together in one holy land. Christ himself says, I'm sending you into the world with the promise that I will be there to strengthen you by the Holy Spirit. And so ultimately, The call here is to avoid the works of Satan. We're going to be mixing with, we're going to be talking with those who are still under 
under the, the control of the devil. But we need to avoid the works. And especially when those works come from the call of that old man in our heart. Those works of the heart need to be brought to the cross of Jesus so that we may have true life. It's only by dying to these things, crucifying our sins, that we'll have life in Jesus. The Jews of Christ's time did not understand God's purpose for clean and unclean animals. They began to make more and more laws until even eating with people who ate unclean animals made you unclean. Eating with Gentiles made you unclean. And of course, this goes directly against what God is teaching in Deuteronomy. He wants you to be separate, but he wants you to be separate so that you are a light. If we pay attention to the foreigner and the stranger in Deuteronomy, we see that Israel is supposed to be a beacon of God's love to the foreigner and the stranger. They're not to avoid them at all costs. No place in Deuteronomy declares fellowship with Gentiles off limits to the people of Israel. They need to be careful. They are never to participate in their worship. Canaanites and Canaanite practices particularly are warned against. But Gentiles in general are the reason. I will, he says to Abraham, I will make you a blessing to the nations. Gentiles are the reason God is setting up Israel as his holy people. He wants Israel to show the world his goodness and holiness. To take God's commands in Deuteronomy 14 and turn them into something that makes Gentiles unclean that twists God's desire for Israel to be a light to the nations, to the opposite. If you become unclean by eating with Gentiles, you cannot show hospitality to them. You have turned God's command to become a separate people into something else. This twisting of the law may have something to do with the final verse of our passage, or rather the final phrase of our passage. You shall not boil a kid, referring to a young goat, in its mother's milk. This verse has puzzled many people. And there's really no evidence for the common explanation of this passage, that there was a practice that other nations, that this was a practice that other nations used in their rituals that Israel was tempted to borrow. It's much more likely that, like the other commandments here, the point is to teach Israel about God's holiness. And the principle behind this command seems fairly easy to discern. The source of life for the baby goat should not become a source of death. We naturally balk at the idea of boiling a kid in its mother's milk. It seems like a particularly cruel thing to do, even if you were going to eat the goat anyway. I would argue that the best understanding of, of the meaning behind this verse is that the teaching of God should not be used in such a way so that it becomes a source of death. And we've seen that already, how the, how the Pharisees used the teaching of God. Our hearts lead us away from the source of the law, God, and we begin to use the law in a way that puts false burdens on people, in a way that is destructive to the spiritual health of the church. 
There are two other places in the Bible where we find this law. In Exodus 23:19 and Exodus 34:26. And in both of these places there are a final word in a list of rules. In both of those places God has just told Israel to tithe. Here in Deuteronomy it's placed immediately after the food laws and before laws about tithing. And both of these Food laws and tithing are rules that can be twisted into something that is destructive to the children of Israel and destructive to their Gentile neighbors. I think we are well aware how tithing can be abused. Either it can be used for something other than it was intended or it can be used to pull out as much money as possible from those who are already poor. Don't use the good law of God to hurt the people of Israel. And of course, the laws of clean and unclean can be used to bind unbearable burdens on the people of God and to create a greater separation between the Jew and the Gentile than the one God has commanded. How would we boil a child in its mother's milk? We may be overzealous in guarding boundaries concerning purity, we can think of how in, in the 50s, the 1950s, people were warned against even touching cards, movies, dancing, and liquor. And certainly we ought to be careful of these things. But as we have noted, the things themselves are not the cause of sin. It's our hearts that are the cause of sin. And so we need to be careful about setting up greater boundaries than the ones that God has provided. We've also been handed down from the time of the Reformation certain boundaries, a certain order in the way we do church. And these are good things intended for our benefit and a gift from the past. We might say that through the Holy Spirit, God used this order to strengthen our life in Christ, just as he used the order of clean and unclean to teach the Israelites about life. But we always need to be careful in following this order that we do not boil the children of the Reformation in the order that has been passed down from the Reformation. And not only the children of the Reformation, also the outsider. The Belgian Confession warns us about this in Article 32. We also believe that although it is useful and good for those who govern the churches to establish and set up a certain order among themselves for maintaining the body of the church, they ought always to guard against deviating from what Christ, our only master, has ordained for us. Do we do that? Do we use what has been passed down in a way that undermines the heart of the Reformation? The proclamation of the free gift of justification in Jesus Christ. It's something we always need to be careful of. Ultimately, the Jews, they took this law and they used it to crucify the Son of God. They took the law and they used it to accuse a truly righteous man of blasphemy. They turned the law into a source of death. Yet God even used that so that we may have life. 
God used that so that those who crucified, those who were actually there physically accusing him and crucifying him, so that they could have life. And how much more for us. The natural man does not bear the name of God. He twists the good things that have been given him into emblems of death. But in Christ, we have life, and having life, we bear his name. In thankfulness for that life, let us separate ourselves from all the works of the flesh, from the works of Satan, and devote ourselves to the life of love that he calls us to. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's sing in response from hymn 10. Hymn 10.